1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know that you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one trans that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, and we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good word. We thank you for the guidance that it gives us on a daily basis. And Father, we just ask that you'd fill this room with your spirit. You'd fill us with your spirit as we hear Rich speak on your word, the things that you've taught him this week. And we just ask that you would fill Rich with your spirit, Lord, that he would bring us uh, truth. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So one of my dreams in life is to purchase my own house. I've been renting for nearly 10 years now, and between having uh, roommates earlier on in life and noisy neighbors especially now, um, the idea of having a place just to simply call my own is so, so appealing. Whenever I move into a new place, um, I tend to settle in pretty quickly. Over the past 10 years or so, uh, I've gathered a lot of furniture and uh, wood, like cherry oak stained furniture at that, Looks really cool, and uh, you know I've also found some uh, good pieces to kind of fit along with that. So at this point, like every room of the house just kind of fits together. Uh, it's an ideal setup in many ways, just minus the house. <clears throat> but imagine <clears throat> having the opportunity to go back in time and to reconstruct and to redecorate your own home. And let's just say that neither time nor money are an issue for you. Right. <laughs> you, you guys saw right through that. <laughs> so perhaps you would choose to go with that cool, you know, Chip and Joanna Gaines style, as it were, the clean white aesthetic with the soft pine wood, and of course those granite countertops that everybody wants nowadays. Or perhaps you're a tech geek like me, and you'd want to get everything ready in advance for all the new smart appliances and smart technologies to kind of hook everything up into place. Or perhaps you're into, uh, you know, collecting antiques and valuables and different trinkets of different kinds, and you'd want to kind of accentuate that in your new home. Whatever the case might be, there's something about this idea of building and beautifying that which belongs to you that gets us motivated and it gets us excited. And when you have ownership over something, 
something that belongs to you, you're more likely to invest your time and your energy and your resources into fixing this thing up and enhancing it and caring for it. This is the exact kind of mindset that I believe Paul was trying to instill in the church in Thessalonica. This idea of enhancing what has already been given to them. Paul was urging the believers in view of the gospel of Jesus Christ to aspire to live two ways in particular here in this text. Holy lives and humble lives. Holy lives and humble lives before God. Now, as the scripture was just read, we saw this first admonition of Paul, this encouragement to live holy lives there in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. Just to reiterate, in verse 1, it says this, Finally, brothers, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are already doing, that you do so more and more. Now, as usual, whenever we receive any kind of words of instruction, we do well to actually listen to the subtext of what is being said, to kind of tune your senses and listen to what is being said between the words, as it were. And I think we do well to listen for the heartbeat, as it were, of what Paul is saying to this church. Now, I had mentioned in my sermon uh, two weeks ago that there's this kind of tender and fatherly tone of voice that Paul is using here in 1 Thessalonians, really all throughout, but we still see it here in chapter 4. Because Paul cared deeply for this church. They were near and dear to his heart. In 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 2, Paul had expressed that he brought these people before God in prayer so often. He was consistently thinking of them. They were always on his mind, as it were. We saw in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, that Paul was just affectionately desirous of them. And that he felt, in his own words, like a father toward his children, toward them. He also then exhorted each one of them and encouraged them and charged them to walk in a manner that was worthy of God. God who had called them into his own kingdom and glory. And we also saw that these very people were God's, uh, uh, Paul's rather, glory and crown and joy, his crown of boasting before God Almighty. Again, they were very dear to Paul and they were precious in his sight. So as you can probably see by now, Paul was just absolutely smitten. He was absolutely jealous for this church in Thessalonica. They were, again, consistently on his mind and practically etched into his very heart. And he wanted them to know this love of Christ and to be so compelled by this love to obedience. And from what we can see in this letter, they seem to get it. <laughs> they seem to understand the love of Christ and desire to obey God as a result of that. They loved the gospel so message and they loved Christ so much that they wanted to obey God. They had indeed Again, as 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10 said, they had indeed turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for the Son from heaven, whom he had raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So now as we turn our attention back over to 1 Thessalonians 4 in particular, 
Notice how Paul is just building upon these two things again and again. These two things being, you know, holy service to God and then kind of a humble uh, waiting upon God as well. Holy lives, humble lives. These are, again, the two themes that I want to be unpacking this morning, holiness and humility. Now, as we look at uh, verses 1 through 2 in 1 Thessalonians 4, notice that Paul was just especially proud of this church. He was proud of the fact that they had received the truth and they were already walking in it. Paul was totally acting like a proud parent, as it were. I mean, if he was at a sporting event or some kind of you know, school event or game or whatnot, he would be that proud parent just cheering his kids on. You know, that's my son. That's my daughter. Keep at it. You're doing great. Remember what I taught you. You know, he was cheering them on. He was for them. He was on their side, as it were. And Paul was cheering them on in particular in regard to their sanctification. Now, sanctification itself is a tricky subject to think about. You know, we use the word a lot in our kind of Christianese, our Christian language, but we might not think about it that often. Sanctification, to use an analogy, is itself kind of like driving down a long stretch on a highway. You know, the safest place to be on the road is, generally speaking, right in the middle of your lane. Um, but, of course, you know, as we know from you know, some highways right around here, people tend to veer toward one side of the road or the other. Uh, I travel on Highway 29 uh, every day to work, and I'm always seeing people kind of veer to the left or veer to the right and endangering people around them. Um, you know, are these people about to switch lanes, or are they just texting or maybe watching YouTube videos? You just never know sometimes. <laughs> and likewise, we in our own Christian lives have this tendency to kind of veer toward one side of the road, as it were, or the other. And the two sides of the road in our lane are these. It's licentiousness and legalism. Legalism and licentiousness. See, legalism is kind of like driving too close to the cars that are going along with you on your side of traffic. You endanger somebody by veering too close to them, and you're putting them at risk. People who are right there with you in your own lives. Licentiousness, in many ways, is putting yourself at danger because you're facing incoming traffic on your left side, as it were. Hopefully that makes sense. It endangers you by putting you at risk. Now, legalism is this notion that we have to clean up ourselves before God in order to present ourselves before God. It has no regard for Christ because um, it forgets that really all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Likewise, licentiousness goes to the other extreme, as it were, and it believes that because we're saved by grace, we're then free to go on sinning against God and, and sinning against our fellow man. But see, it also has no regard for Christ, as it actually neglects the very holiness of God. Here in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8 in particular, I believe that Paul is speaking more so about, not as much legalism, but more so about licentiousness here in this passage. It's not as though the people within this church were blatantly rebellious, like you know the church in Corinth, for example, but Paul knew that the past of this people in Thessalonica um, was indeed one of profane service and worship of false gods. They were living in the very midst of a very syncretistic culture where anything kind of seemed to go. 
And to be honest, we kind of face some similar situations here in our own modern American culture. Anything seems to go. Do whatever you want. It's dangerous. So in verses 3 through 7 then, Paul had told the church the following. Verses 3 through 7. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Now, if we had to isolate this passage from the rest of the letter, this may all sound like a whole bunch of do's and don'ts, as it were, right? But again, keep in mind Paul's fatherly tone of voice here in this passage. See, like a father, he wanted to protect these children, these spiritual children of his, from the dangers that sin brings. How much more so does God, our Heavenly Father, desire to protect us, his children, and to keep us from these blatant sins that we are so prone to? Now imagine again your own ideal home that you had in mind earlier. This newly renovated house in the style of your own liking even. You've fixed it up to your liking and you're continuing to enhance and to build upon it. Who of us in our right mind would strike a match and just drop it in one of the rooms and walk away? Um, oddly enough, when my brother was two years old, and he knows this story was coming, by the way, but um, when he was two years old, he did that very thing. <laughs> he actually figured out where the wood stove was, and being a smart kid that he was and, and is, he took the matchbox, lit a match, and then realized quickly as a two-year-old, hot, hot, <laughs> what do I do with this? So he drops it on the couch in my uh, parents' living room. I walk in there a few moments later, and uh, you know, there, the whole arm of the couch is on fire, just bursting forth in flames. And I'm like, Mom, Mom, the couch is on fire. What do I do? I'm like nine years old at that time. Anyways, uh, of course, my mom was able to put it out. But the whole thing, you know, none of that would have happened if, you know, we ourselves were in that situation. We're hopefully in our right mind. We would never do that ourselves. A two-year-old might do that. Someone who's a little crazy might do that. But hopefully not us. Um, of course, if you guys have seen the show The Office, you know, Dwight Schrute in the fire drill episode did the exact same thing. <laughs> Point being, um, it's irrational, right? <laughs> and in the same way, sin is irrational by its very nature. And sexual immorality, which is being talked about here in particular, though it may be alluring and enticing in the moment, is especially destructive. It's like lighting that match and just dropping it in the house in your in the room of your own house and walking away. It's like um, a fire, again, that slowly burns down your home, if not attended to. And like giving anything that is precious of yours over to a flame, sexual sin is uncontrollable. It hurts and it harms those within its very reach. This is why Paul commended the church for their desire to walk with Jesus as Lord, and to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And it's God's will for us, just as it was for the Thessalonians, that we also learn how to control our own bodies in holiness and in honor. 
And when we do sin, which we will, we do well to be quick to repent and to make amends with those whom we have hurt and harmed and sinned against. Paul in 2 Corinthians, uh, speaking of a church that was wrestling with these things, in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, he instructed that church to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Because our bodies together with our minds and our souls are in many ways like a temple to God. And his spirit dwells within us. He is the one who sanctifies us, who convinces us of the truth as we submit both our way and our way of life, as it were, unto the Lord and his lordship. So we ought not to grieve the spirit by being and living uncontrolled lives. 2 Corinthians 6 verses 15 and following say this, What accord does Christ have with Belial or evil? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And Paul went on in light of this truth from the Old Testament. Since we, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and of the spirit, bringing holiness to completion and fear of God. This brings us to our second point for this morning. Again, the first idea was this idea of living a holy life. And now we're going to see here in the rest of Paul's exhortation in this passage, in verses 9 through 12, this idea of living a humble life. A humble life. Verses 9 through 12 say the following. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no one, uh, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we had instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. One thing that I find really interesting about Paul's language in general is that he loved to repeat key phrases. He wanted you to chew on what he was saying, as it were, to make them stick in our minds. Now, thinking back to verses 1 through 8, he had urged the church to walk and to please God just as they were already doing, but more and more. And here in verses 9 through 12, he says that he urges them to love one another just as they were doing, more and more. But this kind of love is very unique here in this passage. It's not this general form of love that you might think of. Um, Specifically, he says this, you know, this idea of living quietly, minding your own affairs, your own affairs, working with your own hands, walking properly before outsiders, and not being burdensome to others. In other words, this specific kind of love that he's referring to is this idea, I believe, of humility. Humility before other people. Paul had encouraged the Thessalonians to live humble lives. Uh, The sins that he had mentioned in that last paragraph all had this theme of being uncontrolled, but there's a theme here in this side of the passage of humility, which is marked by being controlled, marked by being intentional and strong at that. Humility is controlled intentional, and strong. 
Now, I was listening to this podcast on masculinity a couple days ago. It was pretty interesting. Uh, it was coming from an interesting secular perspective. Uh, the host of this podcast is an entrepreneur. Um, he is pretty successful in his own right. You know, he's owned his own business for years and has many sports cars, and uh, he coaches young men in entrepreneurship as well, and he speaks at different events and whatnot. Uh, but his worldview regarding manhood itself, again, it's from a secular perspective, it was all fashioned around this idea that men have to rid themselves of any kind of weakness. Any and all weakness cannot be part of your life. You've got to put it aside. Forget about that. Move on, and in his own words, reinvent yourself. Reinvent yourself. See, for people in this line of thinking, including this host of the podcast, being patient, kind, gracious, gentle, humble especially, <laughs> Uh, these things are all signs of weaknesses, as it were. You can't succeed by doing these kinds of things, he would say, and, and they would say. Um, you can't succeed by succumbing to those kind of traits. They're all weaknesses. You have to go against the grain, even maybe trample over people in order to get what you want. Now, as you can imagine, it was hard to listen to this. It was a very long podcast, about half an hour. Um, but there was, it was interesting, and I wanted to listen to the rest of it, because this one Christian had actually written to him. And so this guy was answering, from a very secular perspective, this young Christian man's uh, point of view regarding a Christian ethic. And over the course of those 25 to 30 minutes, this secular perspective from this man, he was, he was tearing this whole Christian ethic down slowly trying to say that this is weak. This is not a good way to live. <laughs> you won't get ahead in life if you do these things. But again, I kept on listening because I wanted to hear the whole totality of his argument. Now, if we're being honest with ourselves, Christian ethics in particular, those things I was just mentioning, they sometimes seem counterintuitive in our own day and age, in our own modern society. See, our culture in many ways, it does perceive of humility as being a sign of weakness or ineptitude, inability. It looks at those who lack wealth and fame and power and authority as being below them. But how often do we ourselves compare ourselves with people who might be in a lower state or condition than us? I would posit that biblical humility is the single most important aspect of our lives that we should be continually striving in and working on and fostering. And I believe that Christ taught as much in the Sermon on the Mount, especially in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. So I would actually invite you, if you don't mind, to turn over to Matthew 5 with me. And I want us to consider these words in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 11. This is Christ speaking about humility in particular. Here again in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 11, I hear these words of Christ himself. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, underlying each and every single one of these pronouncements of Christ is this hope of vindication for those who are living humbly, humble lives. And there's this hope of his reign of sovereign peace and mercy for us all to be looking forward to. And it is, in fact, the humble in Christ who will inherit these things, as Matthew 5 says. See, biblical humility is not at all a form of weakness, but rather it's a disciplining of self-control, a posturing of oneself before the holy and almighty and powerful God, and also posturing yourself appropriately before other people. Humility causes us to better know ourselves in light of God and to have confidence, actually, in exercising grace and love and patience in our relationships, relationships with other people. We're freed from this pressure of having to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps when we have humility on the mind. If I can go on <laughs> on this topic, humility is choosing not to make much of oneself, but to make much of Christ. It doesn't pride itself on one's own accomplishments, but it elevates the successes and the wins of other people, maybe even over your own. Humility doesn't play dumb or ignorant in terms of one's own abilities or strengths, but it does not seek the fame or the limelight or the applause of men. To be humble is to strive for peace. To be humble is to promote somebody else's best interest. To be humble is to be controlled by love for God and love for your neighbor. And to be humble is to live in view of your own need for mercy. So this brings us to our third and final point for this morning. And it's this right here. The place where holiness and where humility meet. See, when we consider these two calls from God here in this passage to us to live holy lives and to live humble lives, we will quickly realize that we do not have the ability in ourselves to match up to the standard of holiness and humility. So enter the gospel. If you will, please turn with me back over to 1 Thessalonians 4. And it's interesting because the gospel is just nestled right there in the center of our passage. It's right there in verse 7, at the very end, the very tail end of verse 7. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 7. Do you all see it? Verse 7 says this. <clears throat> God has not called us for impurity, but how? In holiness. In holiness. Or literally, by means of holiness. See, the law of God tells us rightly, as God's people, that we should be holy as God is holy. But the gospel tells us that though we are unholy and we have broken God's law, Christ has fulfilled it, fulfilled it and made us holy. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, <clears throat> For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, it's only in Christ or by the means of Christ, in holiness, as it were 
that we can be clothed in the holiness and the righteousness of God. Christ himself is our righteousness, and both humility and holiness meet in the person and work of Jesus. It's a marvelous mystery that God, before all time began, made this covenant of redemption within himself between the persons of the Trinity to redeem a people for himself. And even in the fullness of time, to think that he would send his one and only son as the perfect mediator, perfectly fulfilling all righteousness, holiness, and humility. And by his perfect obedience, he secured a right standing before God for us, for all of us who call upon the name of Jesus by faith. My friends, uh, Christ came to us in many ways like an unexpected snowfall on a Friday morning, (laughs) bringing peace and purity and stillness to our lives when we least expected it. In Christ, we see the holiness of God on display, and we see the deep, deep love of Jesus for us, excuse me, and his humility. He is the one who became obedient to the point of death for us and for our sake in order to satisfy the wrath of God against us sinners and to secure an eternal redemption for us. In holiness and humility, Christ died for us and was raised to newness of life, so giving us life eternal. And in holiness, God has called us to this sweet salvation through the preaching of the gospel. The gospel, as it goes forth, is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. In the gospel, we see the depth and the height and the glory and the riches of Christ in full splendor and display. This gospel is worth meditating on. And it will lead us to grow in our sanctification in, again, both holiness and humility as we are being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. So as we conclude, my prayer is that we too, like the Thessalonians, would strive for Christ-likeness. In the scriptures, we see what we are to believe about God and how we are to actually obey him and please him. So may we here at Grace uh, continue to be a people who are enamored with the gospel of Jesus, as you already are, and I know you are, but more and more, as Paul also told the church in Thessalonians and Thessalonica. May we also cast aside every weight and every hindrance so that we can run the race with endurance, following our forerunner, Christ. And may we know the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit who is taking up residency within us, who cleans us up, makes us into that new house, as it were. And finally, may we never think that we have moved beyond um, the message of the gospel as we strive for sanctification. May we never seek this kind of thing apart from Christ, for it's not possible without him. And as my favorite hero of the faith, J. Gresham Machen, once said, I'm so thankful for the act of obedience of Christ because there is absolutely no hope without it. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the perfect and holy one, the one whose blood has washed us from our sin, 
we can't help but thank you, God. God, we thank you that you are the one who, um, in the fullness of time, came for us, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the curse of the law. God, we thank you that this precious gospel, though so simple, is really what informs every single facet of our lives. God, we thank you that this gospel instructs us in how to live humble and holy lives before you. And we can never do any of these things apart from your sovereign grace. So God, we ask that as we um, close out in our time of worship, that you would be reminding us of the bounty that we have in Christ, the riches of his mercy and grace toward us. And may we be encouraged knowing that you are fitting us together for good works, which you prepared beforehand. God, we ask that we would walk in these things, that we would continue to abound in loving one another as we um, here at Grace are already doing, and I see it on a daily basis. So God, I thank you for this church, and I thank you for the wonderful privilege of being able to serve along with them, to serve you, O Christ. And we praise you, and we lift up your name. We pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen.